This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great War Supporter Podcast. Supporter Podcast. Yeah, all right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great War Supporter Podcast. This is Jesse. And this is Flo, uh, who has the flu and is a bit under the weather. So sorry if, if my voice sounds a bit nasal today. We'll survive. We'll struggle through. Yeah, we'll, we'll durchhalten, as they would say. Yeah. What are we talking about today? <laughs> <laughs> That is a great question. We are talking about Hungary and we're going to talk about Bulgaria. And Romania and Yugoslavia, since they're all intertwined in a couple of messes, let's say. Yeah. Uh, let's start with uh, Bulgaria and the Treaty of Nui, which I would say is the um, the hipster of the peace treaties because it's the I, th I would say it's the least known. It's like probably even less known than Sèvres and uh, Lausanne as a package. That's true, but it was nonetheless uh, pretty important, pretty influential. It remade essentially the map of the Balkans in a way that has changed since, but that really determined uh, the fate of the region for the better part of a century, let's say. And um, it's still a hot topic. I, I used to work at a university where there were a lot of students from the Balkan regions. And any time the question of borders and minorities came up, uh, or the First World War, or the Balkan Wars, even for students who were not you know, passionate and studying history, they had gotten the essentials in high school and it was like sparks were flying. So uh, even though the treaty is not that known, it, uh, it still has a significant impact. I would argue a more lasting impact in my personal experience than the uh, Treaty of Saint-Germain has for most Austrians who never really think about it. Yeah, I, I have a few Bulgarian friends. I've been to Sofia and to the Black Coast several times, not just for leisure, but also for, for work. And it's um, a lot of the topics naturally come up when you ask a bit about Bulgarian history. Um, the, the joke about Bulgaria is the only country that borders with itself in regards to the, um, you know, which Bulgarians find funny. I'm not sure, you know, about the other people in the region. Yeah, I'm quite sure there's a bit of a different interpretation in Serbia or Greece yeah, um, or, or northern Macedonia. But, but that joke is something I heard very quickly and uh, I, I had um, a guided tour through the Bulgarian National History Museum and it was also present there as far as I remember. I remember uh, visiting the Bulgarian Army Museum and uh, yeah, the interpretation of the Balkan Wars in the First World War was certainly quite a deliberate one. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I think the Balkan Wars, 
do play a role in the Treaty of Neuilly, even even though the treaty is, you know, more concerned with Bulgaria as a central power and the entry into World War One in 1915, the animosities between Greece, Serbia, Bulgaria as the main players here um, is very much related to the two Balkan wars, who stepped whom in the back, let's not answer that question. And also, um, of course, you know about the previous period where they all these um, regions broke off the Ottoman Empire. Right. It's that it's that legacy. It's all about context, and it's all about people dragging metal things on the floor above us. It's fine. Um, no, that's definitely true. And again, it's it's hard when you look at the Balkans to draw such a distinct line in 1914 because things bleed backwards uh, all the way to 1912 or 1911 if you include the Italian uh, Ottoman war and bleed forward as well uh, to 1915 when uh, Bulgaria joins the central powers and even though the Treaty of Neuilly is a settling of accounts for the 1915 to 18 period in many senses it's also a settling of accounts for 1913 and the Second Balkan War. And the territories that are disputed then uh, are in dispute again in 1919. And things uh, don't really go Bulgaria's way because of its uh, decision to join the Central Powers in 1915. Right. And I think if we, when we talk about the neighbors, uh, of Bulgaria, then we can also already shift over to the other topic we're talking about today, which is Hungary. We talked about the Hungarian Soviet Republic, uh, one of our earliest episodes this year. And I think uh, Romania as a player um, in both in regards to Bulgaria and in regards to Hungary is quite important. And I mean, in their perception, Romania is one of the like in the Romanian perception nowadays, Romania is one of the um, victory powers of um, of World War One. Considering how the Romanian campaign, when Germany and Austria-Hungary and also some Ottoman troops, uh, when they and Bulgarian troops, of course, when they all invaded, and how the Romanian campaign went, you know that is of course an interesting perspective on it. But if you extend, and as far as I know from my Romanian friends, uh, I think they learn in school that World War I lasted until 1919. And if you extend the period to that and see where Romania played a role when they re-entered the fighting on 10th... No, 10th of November, man. 10th it of still November, counts. 10th of it November, 1918. And when you see how they were involved in uh, Poland, uh, in Hungary, uh, in Bulgaria, let's say in Galicia. In Galicia, yeah. Rather than Poland, but yes. In Galicia, and uh, I mean in Bulgaria, then it, you know, you you get a very interesting perspective shift, I I think, to that immediate 1919 period. It's true, and uh, one of the other kind of links uh, between those two is you have a real hot spot. In, in the case uh, between Hungary and Romania, it's Transylvania, where there's a mixed uh, population and competing claims um, and competing ideas about the identity of the people there to some extent. And then you have the part of Macedonia that Serbia and Bulgaria couldn't agree on. 
And it's not only a question of the territory. While we think we should have up until XYZ mountain range, village, or river, it's really they're trying to define the population there in one way or the other way, which can be quite difficult. It's, it's you know, people and languages are not as black and white as well, what uh, states looking to extend their power and uh, make their identity stronger, what they would have it be. So uh, in the case of uh, Vardar Macedonia, you have the Serbs saying, well, uh, either the people there are mostly Serbs or the people there don't have a fixed identity and they can become anything and we deserve to have it. And you have the Bulgarians saying, well, no, they're clearly and and beyond discussion, they are Bulgarians. In the case of um, Transylvania, you have a lot of influences in Romania or uh, currents of thought in Romania saying, well, we should definitely push the borders as far as we can. They, they went past the demarcation lines and are hoping for this Romania Mare, I think, I hope my pronunciation is all right there, but Greater Romania, which ended up with the borders that uh, Romania received, they had a very large number of minorities uh, living there. A lot of Ukrainians and of course a lot of Hungarian speaking people in Transylvania, among others. Um, Some German minority as well. Yes, that is true. Yeah, a Saxon, originally Saxon German minority there. Um, so if you look at it from the perspective of, well, where did our borders end up? Romania is one of the greatest victors of uh, the First World War. But if you look at the, let's say, military outcomes until 1918, then obviously it's a, it's a trickier uh, playing field. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, just generally, I think um, this whole, I mean, it's, it's basically the, the, the common thread that goes through all our coverage of 1919 and also 1918. I re re will repeat it. It's worth repeating. If you introduce the idea of ethnic self-determination in a region that has been ethnically mixed for centuries and millennia before, you're going to have a bad time. And people most definitely had a bad time. And hung Hungary kind of had the, I use this term very loosely, misfortune of... Uh, having this Soviet revolution or this Bolshevik revolution which really put their capacity to have a foreign policy at zero. Yep. So any possibility that they may have had, and it would have been very slight as we can see from the other treaties and in particular the, the Austrian treaty, any possibility they might have had to argue their case in Paris was pretty much done. Uh, because they had a Bolshevik government and this was just ideologically not going to happen, that the Allied powers would really, you know, out of any understanding for Hungary, grant them anything uh, significant. Doesn't mean the Allies were falling all over each other to grant every Romanian wish. They were quite frustrated with uh, Romania, as we uh, talk about in the episode. But there was a lot more sympathy for Romania than for uh, Hungary, in particular amongst the French, since Romania and Poland were supposed to be the sort of linchpins of their new foreign policy in Europe. 
Uh, and uh, and uh, uh, Czechoslovakia was of course also given priority when it came to territorial claims. Yeah, sorry, I should have. Uh, no offense, Czechs and Slovaks, but yes, one of the other linchpins of the system and the Yugoslavs. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, they're the they're the belt of guys who are the new, the new uh, dike against uh, Bolshevism and potentially the new counterweight to uh, Germany later on. And of course that quote-unquote misfortune that you just mentioned will materialize itself in case of Hungary uh, later down the road in uh, next spring in the form of the Treaty of Trianon. And like if you want to talk about a treaty which, which has a legacy till this day oh, yeah. uh, in the region where it, it impacted most and uh, you know, we need to talk about Trianon. But we're not there yet. Um, we are just, um, you know, the current episode about Hungary that's going to come out is more just giving you an update on what happened since spring when the Hungarian Soviet Republic emerged. And I think it's important to remember that even though it's basically a bit the same thing with the Treaty of Neuilly, where Neuilly officially was only a treaty covering 1915 to 1918, but of course diplomatically included the 1911 to 1913, 1914 period as well. In the case of Trianon, it's important to remember that on paper it was a treaty about Hungary's part in the 1418 period of the war, but of course 1919 and the, uh, and the war and fighting and the uh, so Soviet uprising very much colored the outcome of that treaty. And from the Romanian point of view, that treaty was also about the previous thousand years, in some senses. But we will, we will get into that. As far as Trianon being a, a hot topic today, I'll never forget the first time I ever went to Budapest. I got off the bus at the bus station, and there was a, a vendor selling like t-shirts and, and hoodies. And the first thing I saw were hoodies and t-shirts about the Treaty of Trianon and the borders in a Budapest bus station in somewhere around 2009 or 10. Wow. So I've also, I, I've also seen my fair share of these shirts and posters when I visited. Um, and of course, you know, I also have friends uh, from uh, Cluj and from Transylvania and everything. So We have an expert interview this week, of course, and you arranged that interview so you can tell me a bit about who we're going to talk to and about what. Yeah, uh, it was a pleasure to kind of have the chance to, you know, reach out to uh, Dr. Roger Reese, who teaches at a university in Texas. And his area of expertise is the social history of the Red Army. So in our episodes about the Russian Civil War, we haven't delved into the nitty-gritty details about what's going on in the Red Army. We've talked about it generally. Uh, and Dr. Reese is going to be able to give us uh, some insight about how the army was the way it was and how it changed and how it eventually turned itself into a force that was able to win the Civil War. Very interesting. And through editing magic, we will listen to the interview right now. Dr. Reese, thank you so much for joining us. I suppose we can uh, jump right in. I want to let our viewers know that not only are you a 
history professor at Texas A&M uh, University, but you are also specialized in the social history of the Soviet military, which is an area that uh, we haven't delved into too deeply in our episodes. We're focusing a lot on military and political strategy and military operations. So uh, I'm very happy that you've been able to join us so we can kind of turn over this stone. Well, I'm glad to help. So um, maybe we can start off with a bit of a general one. As a social institution, if I can put it that way, how would you describe the evolution of the Red Army in the sort of in the Civil War period? Uh, probably the, the best single word to start with would be chaotic. <laughs> that seems to be the order of the day in the Civil War generally. Yeah, the, uh, the Bolsheviks really hadn't planned for the Civil War in, in advance, obviously. They hadn't planned to create an army. Uh, they really had no military background at all in the leadership. So organizing and leading and recruiting an army were things that they just had to make up as they went along and uh, forced uh, an unfortunate reliance in their eyes on the people who did know how to do those things, which was their, their class enemy, of course, the former czarist officers, um, which bred a lot of distrust um, and resentment and anger <laughs> within the Bolsheviks who were um, trying to become military leaders or, or thought they knew better. Um, and there's, of course, a, a, not just a conflict in ideologies between the, the Bolsheviks and the, the old czarist officers that they, they uh, uh, dragooned most of them uh, into helping. Uh, most of the ones that, they, that helped were dragooned into helping. Um, but there was just this tremendous social antagonism um, be between the, the Bolsheviks in the army, uh, the leadership, well, like um, Joseph Stalin, for one, um, and their reliance on military experts who they really didn't want to have to rely on, but, but were forced to. So uh, the, the exchange of uh, information and learning curve, as we would call it for the Bolsheviks, was a very uncomfortable, very steep one, uh, trial by, you know, learning by error, trial and error, uh, learning through experience, and uh, just reacting mostly to circumstances and necessity rather than calmly planning out the next step of development, of recruiting, of training, of deployment. Uh, they were mostly responding and reacting to events on the battlefield, uh, social events, economic events. So, yeah, very chaotic. So in the midst of all of that uh, chaos, I mean, it sounds like a, a pretty tall order to then defeat an enemy that has uh, more military experience than you and that has some outside support in terms of the, the allied uh, intervention and supplies and, and all the advisory commissions. How was the Red Army able to achieve that? How was it basically able to, in spite of the chaos, become better than its enemy and, and win? Right. Well, I wouldn't say they became better than their enemy uh, on, that, on that score. Uh, but uh, you know, it took about three years, so there's that. Um, but the uh, Bolsheviks had some very serious advantages. That is, they held the heartland uh, 
uh, the industrial centers where they could produce war materials. Uh, they were fighting from interior lines so they could move their men from front to front as needed. Uh, and in contrast, the, the white forces, the counter-revolutionaries, were on the periphery. They were de where, where they didn't have an industrial base to support their activity, so they were extremely dependent on uh, captured weapons and supplies and the uh, allied uh, force, the, the supplies that the interventionist allies gave them. Um, and the forces of the, uh, the white forces were dispersed. They were not connected. You had Kolchak out in Siberia. You had uh, Denikin uh, and, and then subsequently Wrangel in the south and Udenich in the northwest. So uh, they had, so for the white forces never were able to really communicate effectively or act in concert uh, against the Bolsheviks. So the Bolsheviks didn't have to fight all the whites at the same time. So it was kind of a a divide-and-conquer operation. Uh, the other advantage the Bolsheviks had was numbers. Uh, they had, uh, it's hard to say they had true social support, but the average Russian peasant and worker understood that the whites were a real danger of, uh, if, if they won, of turning the clock back, socially and politically and economically. Mm -hmm. And that would be a disaster for them. So, whether they actually supported the Bolsheviks ideologically uh, and as the uh, leading party to govern was in large ways irrelevant, that, that the workers and peasants did support the Bolsheviks in the most part at critical moments because it was in their self-interest too. So the Bolshevik army actually got to the size of like five million uh, th through conscription primarily, but there were some hardcore volunteers. Whereas the whites uh, were only in the hundreds of thousands and divided between the three forces. So the uh, Reds definitely had a numerical advantage. They had a, a moral advantage, if you want to put it in those terms, where the, the, the their soldiers were fighting out of self-interest. Whereas the uh, whites also relied on conscription for the, their manpower. And this was uh, not easy to do. They, they, the soldiers who served them served very unwillingly. Uh, the peasants and work, workers that they um, conscripted, and they had high rates of desertion amongst those soldiers. So even though they had uh, leadership expertise, um, military organizational knowledge, they didn't really have a willing fighting force in the numbers that they, they would have needed to overcome the Bolsheviks. Okay, so... Um one thing that uh, that cropped up when we were doing our, our research for the, the episodes in the series on, on these topics is uh, that there wasn't only desertion on the on the white side. Of course, there's there's quite a lot of desertion on the red side as well, and this conflict between uh, Bolshevik policy uh, with regards to war communism and seizing uh, foodstuffs from the countryside puts them at loggerheads with the peasants. So um, I was quite interested to read that a lot of uh, peasants who deserted in 1919, when it seemed like the balance might be tipping when Denikin is driving uh, the famous drive on Moscow, returned to the colors. So 
is it, a, is it as simple as, as saying that the, the peasants basically en masse came to the conclusion that the Reds are the lesser evil? Or uh, were there other motivations and, and other kind of factors going on there? No, uh, you, you, you got it right on, on the money there. Um, 1919 was a, a, the summer of 1919 was a, a, a critical moment for the survival of the Bolsheviks. Um, there were two major drives uh, towards Moscow, and that was the, the white's objective in the whole war, was just to capture Moscow. Uh, uh, Kolchak was driving westward out of Siberia. Denikin was moving northward from uh, the Crimea and the southern Ukraine. And uh, the Bolsheviks suffered a, were suffering a manpower crisis, because even though they had this huge army, you're right, they... they also experienced substantial continuing numbers of desertions, which um, Trotsky uh, <laughs> would typically, whenever to to address the issue of desertion, Trotsky was always threatening shooting. You know, shoot shoot any deserter, shoot people who sell their boots, shoot. And of course, the commanders on the ground wouldn't do it. They understood that that's not the way to motivate men. <laughs> so, so there there were. Um, at any given time, probably excess of a million conscripts uh, who had deserted. But in the summer of 1919, uh, facing this crisis of, of manpower, uh, uh, particularly on the southern front against Denikin, Trotsky wisely put out an amnesty. He said any peasants or any deserters, I mean, they aimed at the peasants, who came back would be forgiven and not be shot um, if they... Uh, uh, help fight against the the whites in, in this major offensive, and so there was a a a, a dual uh, motivation. So the, the the deserters would be forgiven their desertion, and the peasants would keep their land, which they would lose if the Nikan won, if the whites won the 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 war and had seized Moscow. So they did come back. Uh, I don't know. If, well, definitely not all of them came back, but hundreds of thousands came back uh, to the colors and defeated that summer offensive. It took all the way, really September before, September 1919, it was clearly defeated. And then we see a steady trickle of those same men deserting again. So they- <laughs> Job's they done, had, time to go home and worry about the harvest and uh, so forth, yeah? I think that's exactly what it was. They, they, they had done their job to save the revolution, not necessarily the Bolsheviks, but they saved the revolution from the whites. And uh, I think they determined that they really wouldn't be shot and they needed to yeah, collect the harvest and, and go back to, to farming. So let's um, skip a little bit to the, let's say the culture of the army, because that's another topic that uh, came up sometimes in the literature. And um, as far as I can tell, there was quite a lively debate about how far should the Red Army go towards a traditional culture of discipline, of hierarchy, and so on? Because that kind of clashes with the revolutionary ideals of equality and so on and so forth. And there was a great quote from Lenin somewhere saying, yeah, fine, if you want to keep a revolution army, revolutionary army where no one salutes and you know, there are no epaulets and so on, then you're not going to get an army that uh, the middle peasant is going to fight in. So how did they, uh, how did, what balance did they end up striking between the sort of uh, hierarchy and discipline that you need for an effective military force and then 
I guess, the intellectual goal of a purely revolutionary uh, egalitarian force. Well, you're right. That's, this was a <laughs> very angst-ridden time um, of, of ideology uh, and idealism versus uh, practicality and uh, realism. Uh, they actually did in 1918, you know, uh, uh, abolish the regular army and demobilize it while they were trying to create their ideal uh, working class egalitarian army, uh, which uh, failed miserably. That uh, they wanted to be all volunteers, they wanted to be all workers, uh, class conscious workers, and they simply didn't show up in the numbers that the Bolsheviks had expected uh, and needed. So they had to resort to conscription and that meant, and to get the numbers, you know, they had to conscript peasants, which they really didn't want to do uh, in the first place. So they, they didn't really see peasants as politically reliable, but reality forced them to, to do that. So that was the first compromise. And it was a very uncomfortable compromise, one that they hoped they could, uh, and I think, all the compromises that they made during the Civil War were uh, they, they psychologically accepted these compromises because they thought, well, this will be temporary. After the war, Civil War is over and we can step back and then you know, try again under better conditions to create the ideal army. So they, they, they told themselves that, that there's whatever compromises they made, it's only for now and we'll get back to the, the true uh, vision later. Uh, so... They you know, resorted to conscription, uh, but then you know men need to be told what to do. They can't vote on everything, which uh, they had been doing actually after the February Revolution, and they had to break them of that. Uh, soldiers wanted to elect their officers; they had to break them of that, and that, that took well over a year or into 1920, even in some units. So it, it was a contentious process, one that uh, you know, and the party was divided. You know, some. Some said we, we, we can stick with these volunteers. We can stick with the uh, with the voting uh, for officers and and on down the line on that. But those units and, and the experience in battle, particularly Battle of Narva, uh, February 1918, showed that that this was not going to produce an effective army. And so then this led them to recruiting, you know, by compulsion, uh, former white officers, former czarist officers. Uh, which they hated that idea, but then they invented the commissar to, to co-command with the, these white officers in order to uh, ensure their reliability. Uh, so that was one compromise. So we'll, we'll have the, the czarist officers, but we'll have a communist uh, uh, watchdog with him at all times. That will be psychologically comforting on that. Uh, but the issue of hierarchy was, was very uncomfortable for them as well. Uh, the Bolshevik Party itself was very egalitarian, and that caused a lot of problems. Uh, all the leaders considered themselves equal to each other, and they didn't want to take orders from each other. Like Trotsky and Stalin conflict was a classic one. Uh, so for Bolsheviks to actually learn hierarchy and accept it was a very uncomfortable and unsuccessful process, I would say, throughout the first decade of Bolshevism. So um, they... They just kind of bit their tongues and accepted hierarchy as a temporary necessity on pragmatic uh, lines. Mm -hmm. So um, within the uh, party leadership, were there sort of like opposing cliques of those who uh, viewed 
the potential solutions for the army more pragmatically and those who kind of stuck more to the, to the ideological ideals? And if so, who's on each side? Yes, um, there definitely was a split down the middle. Uh, and Trotsky uh, led the pragmatic faction and Stalin was on the more idealistic faction, that, that party members should be able to run the army and learn as they go, and ideology and class uh, consciousness and political reliability were more important to him and his faction than military expertise were for Trotsky and the pragmatic uh, faction. And, and this caused you know, quite serious um, problems that Lenin was typically the arbiter between those two factions, um, siding pretty much always with their pragmatic faction, but again, trying to reassure people, this is an emergency situation, we'll figure out a better way down the road. We won't have to rely on these czarist officers forever, uh, and we'll get back to a more ideologically acceptable solution down the road. Whereas in the pragmatic faction, there were people who were, you know, they, they kind of laid low at the time, but not always, that, no, it, it, you, you, we have to be pragmatic all the time. This ideological egalitarianism is, is just pie in the sky. It, it won't hold up in, in the real world, whether it's an emergency situation or not. Uh, in the best of circumstances, armies are hierarchical. Uh, they need dis formal discipline and uh, you know, strict obedience. So that they didn't give in, that they didn't accept that this would only be temporary, that after the war, um, they would continue to fight for a, a, a more traditionally structured and organized army uh, than, and so that, that debate would, took place in 1921. Well, actually, several, several ongoing uh, debates and votes and compromises. So after the war, the, the pragmatists basically won, that they, the army never reverted to all-volunteer, class-conscious, workers-only army, that it, it, it was con based on conscription, they had used peasants, and there was a, uh, a, a formal hierarchy. Uh, but they kept the commissars, uh, which the prag pragmatists didn't want, but the, it was a compromise with the, the, the idealists, let's say. So how did, how did uh, the relationship play out, uh, let's say, on the ground between commissars and commanding officers, often formerly Tsarist ones? Who has the last word? Um, can we generalize about uh, the working relationships between them? Did they sometimes get along well, or was it always sort of pure hatred? No, it wasn't always pure hatred. Uh, they... they the, the commissars knew they didn't know how to run an army, for the most part. Uh, uh, they were seldom trusting of the officers, and there was uh, a good deal of uh, uh, deception and betrayal that they needed to be on guard against. Uh, and they didn't catch it all, uh, actually. Uh, we're finding out more recently through research that there were some Tsarist officers who uh, pretended to go along with everything, but they were giving uh, orders and uh, directions for supplies and troop dispositions that really were treasonous 
to the Bolsheviks that, that helped the, the, the white forces, uh, obviously not enough. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and, and Trotsky, as the, the head pragmatist, was, was never uh, foolish enough to believe that they were all trustworthy, but still, he had to do it. But so, so relationships on the ground in, in these major units with the division commanders, corps commanders, regiment commanders, um, were, were always a, tense. But that's a, so uh, the degree of tenseness you know, definitely varied, but I, I've never come across a, an example yet of complete comradely trust between uh, a, a former czarist officer and a commissar. Uh, I, I say, well, there were exceptions in the cases like uh, uh, Mikhail Tukhachevsky and and there was Zaros officers who who did kind of heart and soul come over to the Bolsheviks who thought that was the future of Russia and, and they were on board. So uh, those relationships were better, uh, and and some of those men were definitely sincere, but still the commissars were, you know, they were the class enemy, they're former nobles, you know, can we really trust them? Uh, and so there, but there were some outright clashes where the commissars did have the last word, tried to override commanders who never took it well. And they appealed up through the rather convoluted chain of command. Um, and it usually ended up with, with on Trotsky's desk or, or Lenin's desk even. So it, uh, it, it was a fraught relationship, you know, the varying degrees of, of, of fraughtness, but it, it, it was never smooth, I would say. Uh, I, I can imagine that. Now, were there cases of Tsarist officers who kind of, I don't know, I guess, held their noses? They weren't necessarily dragooned into it uh, in perhaps every case, but decided, well, almost out of Russian patriotism, this is what I've got to do. And the example I'm thinking of, and you can correct me if, I've, if my memory is failing me, is uh, Brusilov. Because as far as I understand, he uh, kind of almost of his own free will decided, well, this is how things are now, and I'm going to, out of patriotism for the Russian cause in a way, uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and command in the Red Army, when he, of course, had been one of the most successful Tsarist commanders before. The, the case of Rusilov and others like him uh, with the same attitude that you mentioned that, that uh, we need to do this out of patriotism was they began to serve the Red Army very early in like December, January, uh, February, uh, January, February, 1918, when the World War One was still on. Uh, they had the armistice or the truce with the Germans. It was a ceasefire, but they hadn't achieved peace. Um, and it wasn't sure that 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 the chief would be a peace would be achieved, and that the war would resume, which the war actually did resume. And so they volunteered to stay on, serve the Reds, really out of patriotism against foreign invasions. Um, not so much that they were fighting against their fellow officers, but against the Germans. And so that's how they got you know, continued their service with Red Army, and then that just, you know, uh, folded over into service during the Civil War. Uh, and in that case, we, we do have evidence that there was uh, uh, tension between the officers who, who, who thought, well, this is the new way, and they're, they're, they're the whites, that is, uh, 
tension that had existed before the revolution, that the, the Russian officer corps wasn't wholly unified ideologically behind autocracy. And uh, Brusilov and others were, they're, they're, I guess we could call them more uh, liberal-minded generals who were at odds, <coughs> excuse me, with the ultra-reactionary officers. And so you see the, the officers that came over out of patriotism to serve the Reds really were those more liberal officers. And the officers leading the whites were obviously <coughs> the more ultra-reactionaries who never got along uh, during the, the, the pre-revolution era anyway. So that's a little social dynamic there. Uh, mm -hmm. It's traceable. Mm -hmm. And what about um, the chances for peasant soldiers in the Red Army to rise uh, through the ranks? I, I just read today, uh, we're also working on a project about World War II, about the Battle of Berlin. Um, and of course, Generals don't come much more uh, accomplished than Zhukov, and he was born as a peasant and served in the uh, Civil War as well. I don't know what rank he attained in the Civil War off the top of my head, but um, were those kind of cases completely exceptional, or was there some degree of mobility for, for peasants in the Red Army? Um, the case of Zhukov is actually um, emblematic. That is, uh, the Red Army in 19... Late 1918, I believe, um, ordered all former NCOs from the old army to report to duty for the Red Army. And so Zhukov was one of those. He had, he had been a sergeant in the Imperial Army. And so he, uh, responding to this decree, uh, reported for duty for the Red Army. And then all of those men, so we're talking thousands, tens of thousands of these former NCOs, were automatically. Uh, promoted to junior lieutenant, so they're, they're all commissioned as Red Army officers. But you know, just by decree, just round them up. You are now an, an officer, and and so that's how he got his start as an, a Red Army officer. And again, with tens of thousands of other former NCOs, um, and that uh, he, I think he did rise to the rank of captain, maybe during the Civil War. I'm not exactly sure, but. Um, yeah, and so after the war is over, you know, he chose to stay on, as did thousands of others like him. And his his true talents were then revealed by giving the chance, given the chance to become an officer. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that um, he obviously was more a soldier than a peasant at some point because he ended up uh, commanding troops to put down the Tambov Rebellion in 1921, which I thought was pretty interesting, and I, I suppose there's a small, well, maybe not that small, uh, core of peasants who were invested and did gain from, uh, from military service in the Red Army. Right, and, and the, the, the thinking behind the, the peasants like, well, former peasants, let's say that, like uh, Zhukov and, uh, and people like him who were involved in suppressing the peasant rebellions, and, and there were a lot of peasant rebellions, was that you know Soviet power is what's happening? You know the Russia has to get on with it. They need a government. They need to, to uh, um, restore the economy. And if every peasant district or village gets to secede and have their own uh, republic, as they were proclaiming themselves to be, that this wasn't going to work. That uh, for the sake of Russia and, and the future of uh, of everybody, 
that these rebellions had to be suppressed. And uh, uh, actually, the, the, using the army to suppress peasant rebellions was uh, has a very long history in Russia. So uh, they wouldn't have seen this as completely uh, extraordinary. Okay. All right. Um, well, thanks so much for talking to uh, me today. I really learned a lot, and I feel like this Russian Civil War journey that we've been on at the Great War Channel is uh, slowly crystallizing as, as things uh, move towards 1920-21. Um, why don't you give our listeners uh, a bit of information about your book that's coming out uh, so that they can, if they're interested, if they really want to dive in uh, deeper to what the uh, Russian army was like at the time um, that they can go in and seek it out. So give us give us the the elevator pitch on your on your latest book that's coming out uh, in just uh, this month, I think. Right, it's, it's going to be available. Well, uh, the title of my new book is called uh, "The Imperial Russian Army in Peace, War, and Revolution, 1856-1917." Uh, uh, it'll be available from Amazon in the first week of November. I think it is. So um, what I did with this project was bring the scholarship on the Imperial Russian Army, the late Imperial Russian Army, um, up to date. There hasn't been any uh, work on the, the, the inner workings of the social dynamics of the Army for uh, about 30 years. And so with so many more resources available um, than, than my previous, the previous scholars had had, that I thought it was the time was was due, and uh, there's a lot more insights to be gained than than we had uh, before. And my my in, in in bringing this scholarship up to date, I really have um, challenged a lot of our old thinking uh, about the Imperial Army, um, uh, about how it worked and and who was uh, responsible for various problems. Uh, and so uh, I'll have to kind of look at my my, my notes here, but. Uh, uh, one of the, the things that I, I challenged was the, the the unity of the officer corps and why, you know, whether it was unified or not, and why it, why why not, and it, it was really not very unified uh, before the revolution, uh, dur during peacetime or before World War One, and the the old imperial officers always blamed the the the, the new officers, and the, the officer corps had really changed by the time the World War One broke out. Uh, half of the office corps was non-nobles. Uh, even uh, a good number of peasants had risen up to through the ranks uh, and through military schools and been commissioned. And so the old officers said, well, these young guys, these non-nobles, they just didn't get along with us. They, they didn't share our values. And uh, my research says it's just the opposite, <laughs> is that these people who were volunteering to become officers from, from the lower classes did share upper class values. They they shared uh, monarchist values and, and traditional values. It was the uh, noble elites who rejected these these non nobles, and they were the problem, uh, not the non nobles. So uh, I've kind of you know turned that around. I, I hope people will accept that. Um, uh, there, there's a lot of talk about the officer corps being uh, uh, apolitical. And I, I challenge that, saying the officers were very well aware of politics and involved in politics. Um, and there's this, this excuse that they make during the revolution of, of why they were completely ineffective in communicating with the soldiers and dealing with soldiers 
um, in the, the the changed era only between 19 between February and October 1917, and they always claimed, well, we didn't understand politics because we we were, we were divorced from the political life of, of the country at all times, and and that's simply not true. And what they're masking is the fact that these reactionary officers understood perfectly what the politics of the soldiers were, and soldiers' politics were uh, leftist, socialist outcome to to the revolution, and officers absolutely rejected that. Uh, they wanted to protect their interests, uh, their property, and their class power, and they just couldn't admit that in their memoirs because that would make them look like the ultra-reactionaries that they really were. So um, that... Uh, you know, I guess you, you can kind of see the trend here is that the the problems in, in the Imperial Army that led to the revolution in 1917 were really the, the officer corps problem, uh, the ultra reactionaries not keeping up with the times, uh, being uh, an obstacle to progress, uh, not only against the, the wishes of the lower classes and, and the, the present soldiers, but against progressive officers. Um, who did see that things could be better, men could be treated um, much more humanely than they actually were. So I, uh, I think you might be particularly interested in the chapters on World War One, where we really get the voices of the soldiers now. There are so many memoirs out there by um, junior uh, officers who rose through the ranks, who were literate, who, who were from the peasantry. And uh, books of letters being published from from soldiers to their families. You really see the flavor uh, of life at the front, and 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 what led up to the mutiny. And and the basic problem we see is their treatment, just the everyday treatment of soldiers at the hands of their the leadership. Uh, they were cursed and beaten, not fed well, treated like uh, uh, cannon fodder. And so when they revolted in 1917. It, it was not for ideological purposes whatsoever. It was for social purposes. They just wanted a, a better treatment for themselves in the, as soldiers, much as they had in the Revolution of 1905, and they wanted better treatment for their whole class. You know, social equality and economic opportunity, uh, which the, the old system was denying them. So we see the same problems in civilian life as we see in the military. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it sounds fascinating. Um... We'll also put it in our Amazon influencer store, so our listeners uh, who watch our videos will be able to see a link there and get to it. Uh. We're taking your time. Uh, we always appreciate if the experts have time to chat a bit about uh, these kind of very specific topics. And I also think most of them are always thrilled that uh, some, some weird people on YouTube uh, take an interest in it. And I always uh, appreciate it that they are open to it. And we've teased it a lot in the last episodes that we're still working on, our, on your Patreon questions, which, you know, they require a bit of research time because we want to answer them in a satisfactory manner to you. Um, this month, we picked a question from Alexander Schutz, and that is about uh, the regions of Alsace and Lorraine, which, of course, uh, 100 years ago were part of France again, and sort of how they were reintegrated into France at the time and kind of, you know, what the population there thought about it, what the French thought about it. Um, so you did a bit of research about that. I did, and what the population thought about it and what the rest of France thought about it were not always the same thing. So 
on the surface, it might seem simple. And it seemed simple to a lot of uh, French people at the time. You know, Alsace and Lorraine were part of France until 1871. Then they become part of Germany. Now they come back. Everybody's happy. End of story, right? Uh, but of course, as uh, we always discover in 1919 and at other periods as well, it's not that simple. For one thing, the sort of myth about Alsace and Lorraine that was built up in France for the 45 years uh, preceding World War I didn't really line up with the reality of what they found when they marched in in November 1918. Alsace is not like the rest of France. It's a particular region. It has a different subculture. People there uh, speak a, a German-influenced dialect. They'd been a part of the German Empire for 50 years. German was the main language. Uh, people had been educated in Germany. 380,000 Alsatians uh, had fought in the German army, for example. So um, it was different than the rest of France. And it was different than the image that the rest of France had of it. There was this image created that it is France. You know, this is pure Frenchness over there on the eastern borderlands, and now we're going to be united with it again. And sure, it adds sort of a quaintly different local peasant dress, but it is France. But it wasn't really that way. Uh, people had their own regional identity. People had tried to live as best they could uh, in the German period. There was a lot of German immigration, so there were a lot of quote-unquote, pure Germans living there as well. They'd intermarried. People were of mixed origin. I feel like that's the, basically the theme of the show. <laughs> People were of mixed origins. Yeah, and, I, and um, you know, just to uh, say that, I mean, you, you know, we can always uh, uh, jump, when we talk about inter-European wars and conflicts, we usually jump from 1870 to 1914, you know, uh, elegantly, but it's, that, that's like enough time for two to three generations of people. To know. grow up in a very different environment, right? Yeah. And be shaped differently. About a quarter of the population were Protestants as well, who weren't always quite happy about becoming a religious minority uh, in, a, in a majority Catholic country. So this created some issues. And uh, when the French first arrived, there was like celebrating in the streets and so on. And some of that was genuine. And some of the reason it was genuine was World War I. Um, because everybody was happy that the fighting was over. Everybody was happy the fighting was over. Everybody was happy that they were going to get enough food because France was able to import food, of course, from uh, other parts of the world and Germany wasn't. So the hunger problem was not comparable. Um, and also the Germans had uh, been a bit harsh on uh, the Alsatians during the war. They sort of suspected them of mixed loyalties. They interned uh, quite a few. They uh, imposed martial law on the, the province and so on. So something, this something that the Germans also did with the Dan Danish minority in northern uh, Schleswig and also I think with the Poles in, in the east. Uh, uh, so this created resentment and made a lot of people more kind of happy, basically, that, that the French were marching in, happier than they might have been in 1913, for example, when things were more calm and more stable. But they also knew what was coming. Some of the local elites, like mayors of towns and things, organized uh, 
these, uh, these receptions for French troops and said, okay, we're going to put on this, these kinds of dresses and this is how they were shown at the fair in Paris before, so this is what we're going to try to show. We're going to give them what they want, right? Because it's a new power over us. So it's a combo of like sort of genuine affection, genuine relief, and the power dynamic that people sort of played to. Uh, so it's a bit of a complicated um, situation in that, in that sense. Now, once the French arrive, these misunderstandings uh, and, and different expectations continue. So they also suspect the Alsatians of disloyalty and so on. After all, they have been indoctrinated for 50 years. Exactly. And so they set up, while it's under military occupation, so before the Treaty of Versailles makes it officially legally part of France, where French laws apply, and you know all the, all the human rights of the Republican uh, theory and so on, it's under military occupation, so there's like a legal void. And this is put to good use because they set up uh, triage commissions, as they call them, which didn't really have any legal criteria for you know, what they were supposed to do or who they were supposed to uh, investigate and so on. But the basic idea is they were to weed out any disloyal elements or people who weren't patriotic enough or people who had, you know, quote unquote, collaborated with the Germans in the past 50 years which I guess is basically anybody who tried to have a job or uh, who worked with Germans or went to Germany to work and all these kinds of uh, different things that would be sort of unavoidable. Um, and some others that weren't. Sometimes um, these commissions went after people who had denounced other Alsatians to the Germans for having pro-French sympathies. And now Alsatians were going to the French commission to denounce other Alsatians who had pro-German, supposedly pro-German sympathies, so it's a big mess. And these commissions were run by the military as well, with basically no sort of laws to, to judge them. Uh, and this basically meant that the French Republic kind of gave up on its Republican principles for this little lawless window of time. Uh, it's not like there was mass executions and things like that, but there were expulsions, there were internments, and people were sometimes sentenced to being under surveillance by the French for X amount of time. It reminded me uh, somewhat of when Germany was reunified and then it comes out who was this, you know, giving information to the Stasi and all this uh, Oh, you mean in 19, 1989? Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. In, 19, in 1989, 1990. And uh, this creates a lot of... Uh, conflict within Alsatian society, these changes, because uh, people are denouncing each other and this is, this is uh, the death knell for any unity, really, in, um, in a society. And what the French also do is they try to categorize people based on ethnic origin. And this is like a weird foreshadow of how much this would start happening in the 1930s, in a sense, and also what happened in Vichy, France. Um, but they issued ID cards to Alsatians that had uh, these letter codes that could tell the official, the bureaucrat, oh, and the other cool thing was they brought in mostly bureaucrats from other parts of France who didn't have a good understanding of the local realities, so that was another complication. But these ID cards basically indicated, are you, quote unquote, 
pure French, so were both your parents born before 1870, or were you born, or were your parents born, you know, in Alsace? Are you married to a German? Do you, are your, were your parents from Germany? Is one parent from Germany? Is one grandparent from Germany or Austria, etc.? And they had these different, you know, A, B, C, D. D is you're somehow a citizen, <clears throat> excuse me, you're somehow a citizen. D is that you're somehow a citizen of the former central powers and A is you're a so-called pure Frenchman. So this creates all sorts of divisions in the society and it creates sort of shame versus power dynamics and privilege based on your ethnicity. And here is the state that's supposed to be a republic. You know, citizens are equal. This has been the credo since 1789. Falling into this typical late 19th century and 20th century uh, were nationalistic uh, view that kind hard, of overpowers yeah, and have very hard categories. No, right. There, no, there's no black or white. There's no you were born here, but now you're a citizen of our republic uh, like the others. It's the nation sort of trumps the republic. And that's, uh, as I think the rest of the 20th century showed, can be a very dangerous route to take. A slippery slope, as, Indeed. as the historians like to call it. Yeah, slippery with people's blood, unfortunately, yeah. but yes. All right, I had no idea about any of this. This was very interesting to uh, hear about. And I think this is, once again, uh, something I've been recently thinking about. Um, because, you know, sometimes, you know, people ask us, Hey, why do you still cover the 1919 period? Uh, why do you, uh, you know, wasn't the war over in 1918? You know, that kind of question that we got also in the beginning when we announced we would go into this period. And I've been thinking about this a lot uh, also in terms of other periods because what usually happens is with these kind of fixed dates for conflicts, we like to, talk, you know, we love to talk about, you know, how, how uh, the outbreak of the war and then kind of fade out, fade to black um, when the armistice or peace treaty is signed. But the process of like after a conflict, the transformation process of going over through to peaceful to, to a peaceful society again and you know with all that emotional and economical and polit political and whatnot baggage that comes from, from the war, and in that case, a war on a scale the world has never seen before. Um, I think that's like where history is actually, you know, really made. That's like the, the, the history that actually affects the people the most. I mean, of course, it affects a family in Alsace or wherever when, you know, a son dies or a husband dies. Uh, but the realities of how they're going to live their life after the fighting stopped is, you know, that's like the most direct impact this war will have. That's true for people in Alsace, that's true for people in Hungary or in Transylvania or in Dubruja or in all these regions that, that, that kind of were affected. That's like, you know, when even when you didn't fight and even if you maybe didn't hunger or anything, that's like the most direct impact you will have. And I think it's very interesting and important to see how, for example, a state or state actors or international diplomacy worked out and shaped the life of the people there. And I think that's like the most 
it's almost as almost as important or even more important actually than talking about tactics and the fighting itself. So this is why we're talking about this. Indeed. And with that thought, we will leave you be. And as a kind of um, look into the future, um, in November and December, we will, uh, in December, actually, because I, I'm kind of getting confused which period are we covering now, in December, we are going to talk about a certain German political party, which is called the German Workers' Party. And they have a um, apparently gifted public speaker uh, who also was a veteran of World War I, and his name was Adolf Hitler. They, uh, I have a feeling they might make some noise a little later on. Yeah. And I'm already looking forward to the comment section of this video. Oh, Lord. <laughs> All right, so uh, see you next month. And if you have any questions, uh, of course, keep them coming. Thanks, folks. We'll see you in the next episode.